Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Now, if you thought code was about writing computer programs, you need to reboot, because for my guest today, it's about writing history. Anna Brailsford is the CEO of Code First Girls, the social enterprise dedicated to transforming tech by providing the skills, space, and inspiration for women to become future tech leaders. And it's all central to the story of an innovator writing a new narrative for the tech industry that puts women at the very heart of the script. Anna, welcome to Changemakers. Let's pick up the story. Your message is stop talking, start acting. Tell us more about what you want tech to do. Very much. Well, I just want to start by saying thank you for having me. That was a great introduction. Uh, what do I want tech to do? Uh, first and foremost, I want tech to change. I want people to stop talking about tech changing and actually invest in, in real change being achieved. I want some tangible outcomes. And I really want companies in particular to stop jumping on the bandwagon um, and actually start acting. Uh, that, that's what I want to see. Mm. And I mean, you've delivered more than than 20,000 coding lessons to to women across the UK and and Ireland. But even though that sounds like a big figure, I'd imagine that's scratching at the surface in terms of actually the scale of of actually what needs to happen. Of course. And if you look at the uh, numbers in terms of demand for Code vs Girls, uh, our demand has increased by 800% uh, versus last year. So we've seen a real uh, increase in demand you know, due to COVID-19 and, and various other factors. And essentially, we have pent up demand from, from women from incredibly diverse backgrounds that, that want to learn how to code. Mm. Um, the, the demand for, for tech skills has, has simply ballooned, particularly amongst women uh, and particularly uh, from women from, from different uh, racial backgrounds as well. I mean, I was reading here that um, an Evening Standard interview that you did where you said that the biggest misconception is that coders are men. The second is that coders are complete geeks that lack social skills, stay up all night and scurry from under a rock. Um, pick up the story from there. Who are the coders? What, what, to, what, what do we need to learn in terms of, especially for, I, I guess, for, for women that are listening to an episode like this, they might say, well, you know what? I, I want to know. I want to know what I'm getting myself into. I want to know what do I do next? I think we've got to think of, instead of thinking of code as something that's kind of niche and, and unique and, and set aside for a particular type of brain, I really do think we've got to think of as code as something as part of our future in that if we don't understand the basics, at least, I think it's going to be very hard to do the majority of jobs that are going to exist. So mm. for me, this is less of a kind of niche point in time. This is actually an economic imperative. I think, for a lot of women. Uh, And a lot of women are waking up to that fact that if they're going to be part of the future and they're going to be part of making products uh, and companies in the future, um, that, you know, code is going to be a fundamental part of that, even if it's just the the grasping the basics. Mm. I mean, you've given some advice to to help women break into tech um, and about how they they, they take that that plunge. I mean, if in terms of the steps when people are listening, well, okay, I want to do this. What's my first step? What, 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 what do they do? So we have three layers of education at Codeverse Girls. The first uh, is massive open online courses. And that's sort of one hour to 90 minute segments where you can code through social media with your peers and you can get a taster for a, a, a breadth of languages. So you can, for example, for an hour, find out what Python is like before you go into a course and before you commit yourself. 
Following on from that, we have 16-hour courses. That's for women that want to get certified and really want to develop the fundamentals. And then finally, we have the nano degree. And that is specifically for women that want to develop a career in either data or software. Mm. So we're trying to add different layers of education that enables um, women actually of, of any age group, particularly with the mass open online courses, uh, to to dip into that content and to to learn whether they actually like coding or not. Mm. Well, tell us about. Um, I mean, you, you've you've mentioned the, the pandemic and it and its impact. Tell, tell us about that in terms of how this has, um, I guess, intensified certain issues um, to do with the workplace. So there's some really scary facts um, that have emerged as a result of the pandemic. Pandemic. The the first is that um, in terms of high risk jobs and the people that are considered high risk at the moment, uh, women fall into um, they're about seventy seven percent of that category versus men. So the first first thing to highlight is they're more likely to be in the high risk category for losing their job. Mm. That that is quite frightening. The second thing to to highlight is that uh, we are we are facing a situation at the moment where education has become increasingly expensive uh, over the past ten to twenty years. It, it is one of the most expensive commodities in the world. I think uh, spending increased over the last decade by something like three trillion dollars when it comes to education. Um, we've got students that are facing an unprecedented level of debt. So to, to even have free education during a pandemic, again, I think for, for myself, this is an economic imperative to get women back into work. We're seeing grads, uh, uni graduates uh, who are deciding that to future proof their career, regardless of the discipline they studied, regardless of whether they studied STEM, computer science or say a, a humanity they're going to go into technology because it's something that's future proof. And you're also seeing women that have been displaced and lost their jobs by COVID-19, realizing that they're having to reskill in order to join the, the economy again. So we're seeing numerous factors coming together. And that's why we've seen our biggest year yet in terms of, of Code First Girls. Well, and, and I mean, it's also not just an, an economic case, is it? I mean, you know, there are factors like domestic violence, um, other sorts of, I guess, social issues, big picture challenges that society faces now where um, coding has a, has a part to play. Pick that up for us. Yeah, I mean, we, we are seeing more and more in terms of the types of products that uh, women that go through our courses, they're creating products that have social impact. Um, so at the end of any Code First Girls course, you're encouraged to create and collaborate around a tangible product that could actually be used in real life. And what we see time and time again is uh, women creating uh, projects that have social impact. So, for example, uh, we recently uh, ran a, a course through uh, Quantum Black. And uh, the winners of that course and, and the, uh, the, the, the collaboration that took place um, was an algorithm to help predict breast cancer. So that's an example of having come off one of these courses, something that a woman can create or a group of women can create that really, really is changing people's lives. Um, another example, very recently, um, we had a big data challenge uh, and the challenge statement was essentially, are we consuming less energy working from home than we are in the office? 
nobody actually knows, right? This is the first time that, that, that people had looked at big data and our women had looked at the big data coming out of, um, for example, IBM. And they discovered we actually consume less energy working from home than we do in offices. Now, that type of research is, is now gone on the Emergent Alliance, which, you know, which is part of, of government. It has very, very significant social ramifications. Mm. And, and that's the impact that, that these types of initiatives can have. So, so great opportunities, huge obstacles. To what degree do you get a sense that um, technology leaders are grasping the mantle of getting involved in being um, a solution and a change maker themselves in terms of backing this type of work? I'm going to be very transparent about this. Um, it really depends on the stage that the technology company is at. Um, so one one of the issues with some of the, say, the, the big unicorns, right, um, that have grown at, at a really fast rate is that they are adding to the uh, they're adding to their engineering departments and they're growing so quickly. They're just trying to keep their head above water in terms of uh, product innovation and uh, and the way they're building their company and, and revenue growth. The issue with that is they're not putting diversity and inclusion and not thinking about the type of culture that they're creating as a result. They're just simply adding and growing and adding and growing. And frequently it can be quite an aggressive environment in that respect. Mm. What happens is with a lot of these unicorns is they turn around after all this happened and they look at their workforce and then they go, oh, well, they're all men. And you know what? They're not just men. They're all white men. And it's kind of like, well, yeah, because you weren't paying attention. You didn't have that at the very beginning. There's, there's no space carved out for that. But, but, I mean, I suppose you would agree with the point that just saying you were too busy to notice is not a really good, you know, defence. And similarly, when you look at just how much 2020 has been a year where so many issues have surfaced, so many, um, I guess, grievances and um, justifiable questions about the future of fairness are being tabled. Um, I, I suppose the question is, to what degree do the people that can help make that change happen get it? I think this year has forced them to get it in many respects. But what's quite frightening is that you're seeing retrospective attempts to try and change cultures and systems that have been created that, let's face it, if anything has come out of the Black Lives Matter movement, it's been, you know, the establishment almost, the, the accepted norm that there's systemic racism. Mm. So what we're doing is we are retrospectively almost trying to fix it. And what I say to any any company or you know any investors that we speak to, unless that's at the heart of something that you're creating, you're actually just creating a far bigger mess further down the line than just stopping and carving out space right now to try and put it at the heart of your business. I mean, you've experienced the scale up culture um, directly as commercial director and part of the team at lynda.com, um, which was um, purchased, I believe, for 1.5 billion um, by, by LinkedIn, um, a major social media um, acquisition. When you look at what you took out of that in terms of, I mean, I, I suppose you're a change maker now because you're running an organization that is committed to making the change. Did you find it as easy when you were in a for-profit um, commercial organization to think in the same way with the same level of crystal clarity? It, it's super interesting because Linda 
dot-com was at a you know a period of growth they were kind of a, a, a slow growth unicorn like they did become a unicorn they did achieve that level of valuation but it did take them a number of years to reach that point which is very different if you compare it to a traditional unicorn that you think about one thing that I felt that was quite different about lynda.com at least initially when I joined uh, was that it had a great level of local leadership so it had very much um, localized uh, and, and created a culture of local leadership and local autonomy. And what that meant for me uh, in EMEA was that I actually had the ability to achieve things very, very quickly and with a level of clarity um, that, that probably when we were acquired by LinkedIn and you join a much bigger corporation at that point, um, you know, you, you're told much more what to do um, mm. you know, by the central higher powers. You, you don't necessarily have that, that sense of localized uh, strategy. So initially, I think with, with Linda, although we were growing and it was a bit of a roller coaster, it was 100% year on year growth that we experienced. We still had very strong localized leadership. And I actually can't speak highly enough of that. But looking at your story, the story of the empowered leader feels a very important one to you. I mean, I, I read here that you started off in a fam, in family-run businesses and I've always gravitated towards entrepreneurial roles. What is it about that that sort of inspires you, brings out the best in, in Anna in, in, in that respect? I think probably the sense to, to make something your own. Um, I think that's really important. I've always believed that. Um, and I think when you do that and you combine that with a level of creativity, but also commercial understanding, you really do set yourself up to be a successful entrepreneur. A lot of companies, a lot of big tech companies, I worry sometimes like what they're missing or that secret ingredient is the entrepreneur. In fact, whenever I interview someone, if I interview someone that's entrepreneurial, those qualities for me are ranked far higher than somebody that, that, that you know, has a fantastic corporate track record. But, but I mean, you get, I mean, reading your story i mean you you get the sense that you self-identify with the entrepreneur you see yourself in in those terms i mean going back into your life in terms of when that when that kind of awareness self-awareness that sense of agency started to sort of shape itself i mean i'm i mean obviously you always look at people's careers you know here's somebody who's been a campaigner they've been part of a high growth business they worked with linkedin that bit all makes sense the bit that gets you to that in terms of Anna's sort of starting out in her career, starting to understand the what makes yourself tick. Give us a sense of that part of the story in terms of that, I guess, that awakening, that entrepreneurial awakening. I think a lot of it is to do with family. It really is. I, I don't think anyone's family is normal, but I think mine particularly aren't normal. Um, I think they're going to listen to this episode and make, make sense of that in the, in, the, in the best way possible. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to send it straight to my granddad. Um, what what do I mean by that? We 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 come from a kind of a a long tradition of well, we're originally from Liverpool, right? We're our family from Liverpool. Um, uh, I would say highly articulate, have had to in many respects um, make do with what they've got and grow what they've got to the kind of the point where they are today, and in many respects self made completely. Uh, they they didn't they didn't really come come from much so I think when you you grow up with that mentality it wasn't given to me on a plate 
Um, everything I have, they taught me to fight for, which I think is really, really important. So, so ambition. Yeah. Um, also, it's not going to be given to you. It won't be given to you. you you've got to make it for yourself. Mm. Um, and also this sense that for me, the most important thing probably in business is people. And again, my family taught me that as well. Uh, if you make great relationships, you'll probably do very, very well in business. Because I've got a sense there's a social justice part of your story. Because, I mean, you, you achieved a graduate diploma in, in law. I mean, have you found that business um, has been a, a way, a tool for you to express that side of yourself in terms of fairness, justice, equality, those sorts of values? Yes. Um, more so now in the role that I'm in. Um, I have to admit, I didn't always feel like that, particularly throughout my 20s. I think throughout my 20s, I felt somewhat of a burning frustration, actually. Mm. Um, I've been in situations where I, for example, have actively, I remember actively going to my boss and saying, I'm, I'm bored stiff. <laughs> Please do something with me. Please challenge me. Um, you know, take me to the next level. And um, consistently, actually, probably hitting a glass ceiling. And having to move as a result of that. I mean, it, it, I mean, when you say here, the best decisions I've made about my career aren't necessarily safe or predictable. I mean, there is that need. You know, you get a sense of somebody impatient, in a hurry, wanting to sort of move things on consistently. Is, is that is that a fair articulation? Do you think? I think a fair articulation would be. It's it's so. For example, I'll give you an example. I think at twenty twenty five. I have 25, 26, I left a role um, that I was, you know, that, that I was being paid a fantastic amount of money, actually, looking back. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't enough for me. It, it never is enough. Money is never enough. Um, unless I'm mentally challenged. So, so is, is it just a mental challenge? Or is it a search for meaning? Because mental challenge could be keep me busy, get me doing stuff. Or is it more that it's got to have purpose, and it's got to have some sense of meaning for you? I think both. I think you've got to have both. If you have both, you've got the kind of the, the golden situation. Uh, but I completely agree with you that, oh God, I, sounds like that book. I don't know if you've ever read Man's Search for Meaning, um, but maybe we should write a business version of Man's Search for Meaning. But I agree. It, it's that coming together. So it's very hard to find. Well, let's just let's look at the search for meaning, because I was looking at um, what I would summarize as some headlines. And I was looking at your LinkedIn page and actually went down to licenses and certifications, which are leading change, the neuroscience of learning, competitive strategy fundamentals. Are those, are those the three pillars that we need to learn about you? And I can see you're laughing. Yeah, because when you, when you do, so that was back in the day when, when Linda had just started getting their certifications on, on LinkedIn, who, who'd know that they'd, they'd be bought by them, right? Um, and I remember at the time, my boss being like, pick three courses that say something about yourself. They're here to curse you. <laughs> I know, right? I've never got, gotten away from it. So I probably did those when I was about 27, 28. So that's definitely what 27, 28-year-old Anna thought, uh, or at least wanted to project to the world. Um, I think maybe I'd be a bit, bit different now. But they live on in some ways, because I mean, you know, on the neuroscience side, I mean... Um one of your top tips in lockdown is that instinct is queen. Um, tell, tell us about that in terms of how you learn to trust your, your instincts, how you learn to sort of follow your gut. I read a fantastic article recently uh, and it talked uh, particularly about uh, people in sport and how 
the best people in sport, that the people at the absolute top of their game, managed to combine experience with instinct and there's a certain window. And if they act outside of that window, they'll lose the match or they'll lose the game. And I've always felt I have a window around instinct and unless I follow it, things tend to go wrong. It's it's absolutely bizarre in me, but that window of instinct is absolutely golden. And every time I feel it or identify it in business, I follow it absolutely. So, so, so it's a deeply intuitive thing, is it? For me, I think it is, yeah. Um, I And I would encourage anybody listening to recognize that in themselves as well. If they, if they sense that, that, that their instinct is kicking in around something and their instinct usually works, it's telling you something for a reason. And it, that is almost deeply learned behavior, I feel. It goes back to a different level. It's almost genetic. It's almost like genetic memory that you don't realize you're creating, that, that you should act because it, it works quicker than your ability to even think a situation through. And, and see, this is this is the Anna I think I've I've been researching and sort of getting to know a bit through the, through the reading, which is that this is somebody who's got instinct, somebody who likes to get on with things and 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 act, somebody who says that success is what happens when you're making other plans. Um, that actually action really does matter. Is that is that the formula? Do you think is that the entrepreneur in you that's now leading you forward on the issue of of, of code? I, I mean, I hope so. Um, I think when I'm saying, you know, things happen or success happens when you're making other plans, I think what I mean by that is people people are in danger of overthinking things, especially I've met very, very intelligent people who sometimes overthink things to such an extent that they're paralyzed by their thoughts or their processes. And I think now is a perfect example, right? Take COVID-19. I've spoken to so many people that, quite frankly, in the way they think, are paralysed by this situation. Now, the most successful people and the people that have really made hay in this situation are the people that have been able to act faster than anybody else. Mm. They're the individuals that have really come out of this and and done something with Uh, it. How have you personally found the lockdown, the pandemic? I mean, what, what has that done to your own state of mind, sense of self, view of the future? I think it's been really difficult for leaders and I you read a lot about how you've got to support employees more and I completely agree with that and I think employee well-being is more important than ever but my god is um leader well-being important as well because the the number of unknowns and the amount of uncertainty in this situation and your employees always turn for you for um answers And it actually, I think, takes quite a lot of bravery to turn around and say, I don't have all the answers. Somehow it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through this, but I don't have the answers. And I've had to do that several times through this pandemic. I've even said that to my board, incidentally. (laughs) But I think sometimes you've just got to be honest like that and and don't create solutions. And when you say your inspiration, mum, Need I say more? I suppose the answer to that is yes. Tell us, tell us more. My mum started off um, well as a teenager. She was she was an entrepreneur. She had her own business. So you know, for us having a conversation around the dinner table, it wasn't like what did you do at school. It was do you want to look at my P and L or you know do you, do you, are you, are you what do you think about this new product idea? 
um, or talking about, you know, different, the competitor landscape, like that was dinner in my household. Um, <laughs> sounds, doesn't sound fun, does it? <laughs> but, but I suppose, I mean, back to how that Im- impacts on um, your current mission with Code First Girls. I mean, I suppose that leads to a certain outlook that you can, you can crack the code, crack the problem, crack the issues, does it? In, in terms of a can-do mentality or not? <laughs> I mean, in my opinion, we are just scratching the surface and that, that's hard for me to say. Um, but my God, is that is that scratch making an impact? Um, they used to have a, a saying at Expedia that, you know, you, you think you can't make enough impact. And when you're thinking like that, they have a saying internally that if you can just move the needle by 1%, it's a significant impact. It's a, it's a significant difference. We are teaching three times the number of women how to code than the entire UK education system combined per annum. When I think of that, then then my God, are we making an impact? And that is a very good place to leave it, Anna. Thank you very much um, for joining me on Changemakers. And I think making the impact. So thanks there to my guest, Anna Brailsford and the story of Code First Girls. And you know what? I think that's the narrative about hacking history by changing the course of the future for women in technology. And for more from those with the determination to deliver the difference, do join me next time on The Changemakers.